Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You keep us singing, as that song declares. And Father, we sing because of what you have done for us in Christ. Father, we have no other cause for singing unto eternity. Lord, because we have no control over the course of our lives, no matter what we might think, what we might be taught or led to believe. Father, our lives are in your hands. It's you who gives us reason to sing. Lord, and we find these truths revealed in your word. And therefore, we desire to be a, men, a people, men and women of your word. And Father, as we turn now to study your word together, I pray that you would guard what we hear. Father, guard what I say. Lord, let what is proclaimed today be unto your glory. Father, may we leave and be made more into the image of Christ, the living word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the Middle Ages were marked by, as I'm sure you know, fairy tale like castles, regal kings, valiant knights, fair ladies, violent jousting, cool armor, along with crazy weapons, as well as terrible torture devices. Torture chambers, for those who didn't know, have their origin in the medieval period, and they were stocked with all manner of tools to inflict pain upon those kept within their walls. As a teenager, I was given the opportunity not to be in, in, in placed within a torture chamber, but I was given the opportunity to visit several European castles and see some of the things that were contained within these places. And let me tell you, they were frightening. They were genuinely frightening. Now, while the principal subjects of such places of punishment were men, women didn't possess immunity. Now, it was rare, if ever, that a woman was sent to the chambers. However, a unique tool was developed and used almost exclusively on ladies. The cucking stool, as it was originally named, or later, the ducking stool, as it came to be known. The ducking stool was an instrument of public humiliation and a technical device that served as a part of society's wider method of law enforcement through social humiliation. It was constructed from wood, and the ducking stool was a wagon-like machine that had an extended arm that looked almost like a catapult, if you can envision that. Only the arm didn't shoot up. This arm went down. And on the end of this arm was a chair into which they'd place the offender. And they'd then be restrained, and the ducking stool would be driven through town and would stop at different sites of water where the one, to the shame of the one in the seat, as you can envision, they were ducked. Now, this wasn't a capital punishment. The ducking stool, however, was humiliating. And it was used for women who, don't, don't miss this, whose primary offense was scolding, nagging, or backbiting. Isn't, isn't that wild? Scolding, nagging, this is legit. Scolding, nagging, or backbiting. And I want to be very careful here. I want to be very careful here, so please don't understand me, ladies. Please don't understand me. But while I find it sad that such steps were taken, I am amazed by the public's concern for such behavior. We don't care about this kind of use of our tongues today, do we? In fact, most in our culture, most in our society, champion such expressions as symbolic of our individual right to self-expression. I wonder what impact the ducking stool might have on social media if it were to be reintroduced today. Can you imagine how many ducking stools we'd need 
You know, one of the last known occupants of the ducking stool was a Miss Jenny Pipes, whose last name is not without irony, as she was known to be, quote, a notorious scold. She was sentenced by the magistrate for obsessive nagging of her husband. And Jenny's punishment occurred as late as 1809, early 19th century. History recalls that she was trundled through Leominster and Hereford, England. She was ducked several times only to reemerge from the water, railing at her husband and the magistrate. Apparently, this chair did little to tame Jenny Pipes' pipes. This woman's tongue was seemingly uncontrollable. Now, I have to say that I am glad. I am genuinely glad that the ducking stool is no longer in use for several reasons, not the least of which is the fact that I believe if we're all honest, we all struggle to control our tongues, don't we? And it's this reality that I believe James addresses in the text that we're going to study together this morning. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you open it and find James's letter in our Bible's New Testament in chapter 3? Find James 3 and verse 1. Now, two weeks ago, if you were with us, we examined James's warning against believing that we have saving faith in Christ when such faith is devoid of evidence, meaning actions that reflect God's love. And today we come to a section that if you have an NIV, the translators have appropriately entitled, Taming the Tongue. So let me invite you to follow along as as I read, beginning with verse 1. James writes, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships. As an example, although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and Salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, I I believe that in these verses that we just read together, James offers us five insights into the tongue. Five insights with the first being this. The tongue teaches The tongue teaches in verse 1, James admonishes his readers that not many of you should presume to be teachers. And the role of a teacher is one of central importance, as you can imagine, to the early church. The Apostle Paul established it as one of the three most prominent ecclesial ministries, along with that of the Apostle and the Prophet. And the tongue was obviously key to the proper functioning of each of these ministries, as it was the means by which the truth of the gospel was articulated. Without a tongue, teacher, and apostle or a prophet was severely handicapped, and therefore James draws attention to the use of the tongue. However, he does so by way of a caution. As we said, chapter 3 begins with the admonishment that not many of you 
should presume to be teachers. Why? Why? And, and to understand James's concern, I believe we need to appreciate the church's form of worship at this time. And so according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you were to study verses 26 to 34, orderly worship involved anyone who felt that they had a word of instruction, uh, a hymn, a, a tongue, or an interpretation to share it only in a manner that was consistent with the gospel's unity and the gospel's message. And so unlike today where we sit and we receive a, a single word, if you will, the sermon, the early church featured as many words of instruction as were felt to be had by those present. And this understanding was consistent with the worship of the first century synagogue from which many of James's original Jewish audience would have been drawn. Acts 13 offers several examples of such open instruction. And the writer of Hebrews encouraged all believers to grow to be teachers, saying in chapter 5 and verse 12, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. And for the writer of Hebrews, the you there referred to the entire church. And so here in James's letter in chapter 3, I don't believe that our author is attempting to counter the current practices of the church or to attack the office of teacher. Rather, as one theologian notes, he's seeking to restrain the rush to teach on the part of those not qualified. And, and he's doing so for two reasons, both of which are tied to the tongue. First of all, the tongue teaches. As we've made the point, the tongue teaches. Whether we are aware of it or not, the tongue teaches those who hear it. And therefore, those who instruct, James says, are going to be judged more strictly. And the noun that James uses here that's rendered judgment in your Bible is one that the New Testament generally used to express an adverse judgment. Jesus used this very same term in Mark 12 and verse 40 to describe the punishment that faced teachers of the law for, for their flaunting of their positions in public, but then taking advantage later of poor widows. And so what I believe that James is, is describing here is a judgment on teachers who fail to fulfill the obligations of their role. And that's a, a role, if we want clarification upon, that Paul goes on and expresses to Timothy when he says that, that you're to take the things that you've heard and you're to entrust them to others who will themselves become qualified to teach. And he did that in his second letter to Timothy. And so while a student is always culpable for their actions, the greater responsibility lies with who? The teacher, right? The teacher. As, you, as teachers, and we have a number within our church, and we know this fact. In the Old Testament even, God warned his people through the prophet Jeremiah because they'd forsaken him. They'd turned their backs on God. And instead, they'd listened to their leaders. And the prophet described these teachers as bad shepherds, those who faced the judgment of God for leading the people astray. And Jesus shared very similar sentiments in Luke's gospel in chapter 17 when he declared things that cause people to sin are bound to come. It's inevitable. But woe to the person through whom they come. Jesus goes on and says, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. In church, the tongue teaches, doesn't it? Our words communicate. And when we speak without closely considering the content, we run the risk of misleading those who hear us, whether we intend to or not, because the tongue teaches. So James warns against standing up and speaking, specifically in this instance, an authoritative word to God's people without appreciating the responsibility that accompanies such an action. James warns against just teaching flippantly because the tongue teaches. And second, because the tongue is the part of the body most difficult to control. According to James, only a perfect man 
is never at fault in what he says. We all stumble in many ways, he admits. Sin is just something that we cannot avoid, and the tongue is an instrument of evil. <laughs> Therefore, anybody who's going to seek to use it as their principal tool of instruction is asking for trouble. This is like handing a chainsaw to a toddler. This is what he's getting at. And so if our tongues instruct and we are bound to failure in our use of our tongues, does this mean then that none of us should teach? Would this be the wise course of action? And I believe the answer is obviously no. Otherwise, God wouldn't call some of us specifically to this ministry. And so what I believe this should mean is that no one ought to approach the office of teacher without first counting the cost, without first turning to the God who's called you and seek his guidance and presence to watch over all that we say so that we'll speak only that which brings him glory. So what about then those of us who maybe aren't called to teach? What ought we hear from James's admonition? And I believe that because the tongue teaches, regardless of whether or not you're a professional teacher or not, we are all obliged to carefully consider our words. As followers of Christ, we must be mindful of our tongues, choosing as the Apostle Paul urged in Ephesians 4, not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs so that it might benefit those who listen. The tongue teaches, church, and the tongue turns. The tongue turns. If you want to look at verse 3, in verse 3, James introduces two illustrations to establish a single point. It's points that we talked about with the children earlier. The first picture he provides is that of a bit that goes into a horse's mouth. And as we described with the kids, a bit is something I'm sure we're all familiar with. This little piece of metal looks much like a bolt and it has little rings on the end through which the bridle is attached. And this bit is then used to direct the horse in whichever way the rider desires to go. Now, I'm not a horse rider, although I have been told I would have made a great jockey. Although I don't know that those words were intended as a compliment when they were passed along to me. So I'm unfamiliar with equestrian activities. I've watched some horse jumping on TV, but I've never participated. Now, I know there are some in our church family who do ride regularly. I know Tommy rides regularly, Mike and Paula, Judy Myers rides regularly, and so you, you, you are familiar, those of you who have actually been on a horse and ridden, you're familiar with just how powerful an animal the horse is. In the Bible, the horse is often employed to describe, to, 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 to picture strength. Psalmist describes the horse's great strength in chapter 147. Solomon references the horse's use in battle in Proverbs 20, and yet despite such great strength, this horse can be made to turn wherever the rider desires by this tiny, tiny bit. And so for James, the tongue is like a bit in a horse's mouth and the rudder on a ship. Now, when James was likely riding, the ships with which he would have been familiar were undoubtedly smaller than those that we know of today. They, they wouldn't have been just tiny rowboats, but they definitely were not aircraft carrier size. And so my point is simply that this illustration that James provides us has only grown more vivid as we've built bigger and bigger boats. As massive as an aircraft carrier is today, it is still turned by a proportionally tiny rudder. And so James's point here, I believe, is clear. The tongue, like a bit in a horse's mouth, and the rudder on a ship is, is, is a tiny part of the human body, and yet it is capable of profound influence. As James says, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And these boasts that he references aren't wholesome. They're not healthy. James isn't describing the tongue's potential for good here. He, he's warning, rather, against the danger that the tongue poses. And the church is, as I was preparing this, I just thought it's so interesting that as influential as is the tongue, 
We don't spend any time exercising. And I'm not referring to just garrulousness you know, or to being blabby and loquacious as tongue exercise. I mean exercising our tongues so that as Paul describes them, we might bring them into submission. I mean, we have all manner of comp- muscle-building competitions, don't we? And yet the, one of the strongest in the whole body, we never engage in tongue-building, do we? In church, just think how much better off might we be if we could always turn our tongue to direct our life circumstances in ways that would glorify God. The tongue teaches, the tongue turns, and then thirdly, the tongue torches. The tongue torches. Building on this reference then to the tongue's great boasts, James now addresses the outcome of such unbridled talk. He writes, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And just in case any of us might have misconstrued the reference prior to boasting as something positive, he adds, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow. Is anybody else beginning to feel embarrassed by the fact that you have a tongue? You're kind of glad that it's hiding in your mouth and not hanging out so people can see you have one of these wicked things? I don't know, maybe it's just me. But I I think James is certainly troubled by the tongue. And rightly so. We've all learned as children the, the little taunt, sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words can never harm me or hurt me, right? And we all know how untrue such a saying is, the wounds that are incurred from sticks and from stones heal. Now, they may take time, but they heal. They may, may leave a scar, but they heal. However, words, the hurt that's caused by words, sometimes never heals, apart from the grace of God. For how many of you can still remember words spoken to you when you were a child? Maybe it was a friend at school, or maybe a parent, a relative, who said they no longer liked you, didn't want to be your friend anymore. They thought you were ugly. Maybe you were a wimp. You know, what, what words are powerful. And, and like a spark, a single ember, they can set a world at war. Tony Ranke recently wrote an article entitled, Did the Simpsons Ruin a Generation? Did the Simpsons Ruin a Generation? And I was struck by the title because I was a teenager when the Simpsons was on TV, and I was warned against its content then. So I, I was quite intrigued to know Ranky's answer to this question. And his argument was basically that the Simpsons' form of humor, so that's parody and irony and sarcasm, and to be fair, not just the Simpsons as a show, but really that generation of television. But he argued that this show's humor and these shows' humor has totally undermined reality, meaning that today no one takes anything that they see or hear on television seriously or axiomatically. The entire postmodern preoccupation with subjectivity is in large measure the result of your words being used to criticize, to question, to undercut, mock, make fun of what is real. And the family has been subjected to this ridicule. Our sexuality has been attacked. Our educational system, our government, our economy, our morality, our faith, all, all of these subjects have been parodied on television, which has destroyed any confidence that viewers may have had in these things as they may be objectively. So what remains is simply how I choose to interpret them. So through the television, the tongue has torched our nation. And while I doubt there's anybody here this morning that would deny this reality, I just want to make sure that we note the fact that the tongue is merely the spark, right? In other words, the, 
that the raging fire that ensues is due to the dry forest being set ablaze by the tongue's heat. The natural world, the sinful world in which we live is primed for such embers. Under the control of our adversary, who James alludes to there at the end of verse 6 when he's reference to the tongue being influenced by the fires of hell, under, I mean, the, 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 the world is broken. And as a word is carelessly spoken and it lights upon a dry and unrepentant heart, the results can be devastating. And this is why James is so concerned with the tongue. The fires that it holds the potential to start can destroy or they can declare the glory of the God of the universe. So the tongue teaches the tongue torches, turns, and then, according to James, the tongue is untamable. <laughs> As if things couldn't possibly get worse, right? James says the tongue is untamable. He writes, verse 7, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. And in this reference, James appears to draw upon those four creation categories that are provided us in Genesis 1.26, where God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creation, that creatures that move upon the ground. And so God gave people dominion over all of these creatures. And, and here this term tame, or this idea of tame, doesn't merely mean to domesticate, but more accurately to subjugate, to bring into submission. And God gave this ability to Adam, and it has continued to be evidenced by his progeny as people use animals for, for some amazing things today. I mean, people have used pigeons to send messages. They've had dogs fetch. We've taught parrots to speak, monkeys to type. We've got animals that dolphins can flip, eagles can hunt, and you can go on with some amazing things that people have used animals for. And yet, and here's James' point, as incredible as our ability has been and is to tame these creatures, we cannot tame our own tongues. In James's words, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What an apt description of the human tongue, a restless evil. And it's interesting that that word there rendered in your NIV, restless, also occurs back in chapter 1 and verse 8, and there it's, it's translated as unstable. As one theologian describes the adjective and the picture that this adjective is providing, is it's providing this picture of a caged but unsubdued wild animal ever pacing uneasily up and down in its den. How many of you have ever been to the Salisbury Zoo? You've been or to a zoo. There, if you go through those gates, there's this, they have this jaguar in one of the first cages. And if you go through the gates, it's off to the right. If you haven't been, I'd encourage you to go. This, I mean, it's not a very large cat. And by large, I'm comparing it to, say, like a tiger or to a lion. But this cat paces along this track that it's worn by its fence. And as it does, it has this look in its eyes. I mean, it is a wild look. And, I, and it's a beautiful animal. Don't get me wrong. But you can see that this thing, were it to get out, it's not going to run up and jump in your lap and expect you to pet its back. And that's the picture that James is painting here of the tongue. It's this restless tool in our mouths. It's this loaded weapon that's being waved around by a wild man in church. If I'm honest, I don't know very many people whose tongues could be described as rested. Rested, at least not in my house. I mean, our tongues are all restless. We're active. We're always ready to pounce. Quick words come naturally. Sharp criticism comes easily. Defensive retorts, words of denial, we're... 
we're always loaded. I mean, this deadly poison, as James describes it, lines our tongues by nature of our sinfulness. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot tame our tongues on our own because the tongue is untamable. So we've seen from James that the tongue teaches, it turns, it torches, it's untamable. But now I want us to see together that the tongue translates. The tongue translates. In verses 9 and 10, James describes this diabolic dichotomy of the tongue as it both praises our Lord and Father and then curses men who have been made in his image, in his likeness. And this instrument, our tongue as an instrument, finds voice in both the holy and profane. And so James concludes this shouldn't be. And then he goes on in verse 11 to provide three illustrations to solidify his sentiments. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And the point that I believe James is making with these rhetorical statements, it, it should be clear to us all. The tongue isn't the source or the cause of these contradictions. It merely communicates what's on the inside, doesn't it? In other words, the tongue translates the attitudes of our hearts. And right here, James sounds very much like Jesus, who in Matthew 7 warned his leaders or listeners against false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, he warned. But inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, he asked, or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, we might wonder at this point, if James, like Jesus, says that fresh water and salt water can't flow from the same spring, then does this mean that only Christ-exalting and faith-edifying words will flow from a believer's lips? And the answer is, thankfully, no, not yet. Not yet, because part of the process of sanctification that James calls us to in chapter 1 and verse 21 is this active ridding of ourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. When we come to salvation in Christ, church, we receive a new heart by which we respond in faith with repentance and belief. And in that moment, we don't cease to sin. We don't become morally perfect, but our hearts are changed permanently. Permanently changed so that now everything that we do is done by faith in the Son of God. Faith works. All our acts of obedience, our, our efforts to speak truth and words that encourage flow from hearts that have been saved and are not performed so that we may be saved. This is what differentiates the unbeliever from the believer, faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God. And this is the point that we saw James making two weeks ago in regards to works, only today he's developing it in regards to the tongue. And Emmanuel, I these words regarding the tongue as the translator of our hearts is so personally convicting. You know, as your pastor who was seemingly with, never without a word, and I said seemingly, I qualified it for those of you who are in disbelief at this point, because there are moments, believe it or not, when I am lost for words. But I struggle with this. I regularly find myself required to seek someone out and ask their forgiveness for a word which escaped my ugly heart. But then at other times I find myself overwhelmed with words of praise and thanksgiving for God's rich grace in my life demonstrated through the gospel. We, we, we daily struggle 
each and every one of us, myself included, to, to bring every thought captive to Christ, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that words that flow from our hearts and that then escape from our lips will only edify and that will reflect a heart that's growing ever more in love with Christ. Because church, we are all in a battle to tame our tongues. It's a battle that we cannot win apart from God's grace in the gospel. Because our tongues can be used to proclaim God's praise in one moment such as these that we gather together corporately. But then the moment we step out that door, we can poison our neighbor, can't we? As followers of Jesus who live by faith in the Son of God, we have been given new hearts from which should flow an ever-steadying stream of Christ-exalting and faith-edifying speech. And so as, as we close, I want to get practical because it's easy to talk about the tongue and the theoretical, but I want us to get practical, intentional, because how do we implement, how do we provide guardrails, so to speak, so that we exercise our tongues? And I want to provide just three for us to, to engage this week, three ways in which we can intentionally seek to bring our tongues under the control of God's Spirit so that we might speak words that only edify and build others up. And so three questions, the first being this one. As we prepare to engage someone in conversation, before we speak, let's ask, how does what I just heard reflect the heart of the one who said it? How does what I just heard reflect the heart of the one who said it? In other words, we're going to try to put ourselves in the shoes of the ones to whom we're speaking before we allow our tongue to start stabbing away. Ask, how does what I just heard reflect the heart of the one who said it? First question. Second Ask, if I were speaking to Jesus, would I say what I'm about to say? So if my Savior and my God were my conversation partner, or even listening in on my interactions with this individual, which he is by his Spirit, would I say what I'm about to say? So we ask, how does what I just heard reflect the heart of the one to, or who said it? Ask, secondly, if I was speaking to Christ, would I say what I'm about to say? And then third, lastly, Ask, how might I encourage my conversation partner in the gospel? How might I encourage my conversation partner in the gospel? Because church, I believe if we intentionally engage in these tongue exercises, rather than simply speaking and then later regretting, that if we give thought to what we say and allow the, the Holy Spirit of God to, to filter what we might say, then we're going to find ourselves encouraging and growing and building the unity that God has so graciously brought to our church. Let's ask these questions and let's allow God to help tame our tongues so that we might see them bearing fruit that reflects our hearts that have been transformed by His glorious gospel. So would you pray with me as we close? Father, You are good. Lord, You have designed us as your people, in your image. And Father, there are different parts to the body. And Lord, your word makes clear that no one part of the body is more important than another. But we see today the very real danger that the tongue poses when it is uncontrolled, when we don't bring it captive to the Spirit of God, when we don't intentionally guard what we say. For our tongues can teach, they can turn us this way and that, they can change the direction of a conversation from one that was positive and, and wholesome to one that is 
frustrating and, and, and denigrating. Our tongues can torch others, close friends, when we choose words that are unwise. Father, in our tongues, we can't control on our own, for we can't control our hearts on our own. We need new hearts. And that's why you sent Jesus, who loved us so much that he died on a cross to take the sin that we deserved and had committed, paid the penalty that we had earned of death, and went to the grave for three days, and then rose victorious, so that whoever believes in him has life, is set free from those chains, those frustrating limits that we live with, so that now, by your Spirit's enabling, we can speak words that encourage, and we speak them in faith, and we profess our love for you by faith, not that we might be saved, but because you have transformed us and brought us to life by grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. We're not burdened to speak in ways that reflect a heart that isn't changed in hopes that we can convince you to save us, but rather because you transform us by your grace, our tongues really, merely reflect in, in an ever-increasing manner who you have made us by your gospel, your children. Father, may this week as we live, we implement these, these questions. May we ask these questions and think carefully before we speak so that we might bring you glory. And you might give us opportunity, we pray, Father, to to speak a, a word of hope, the gospel, to someone who desperately needs it. For without, without the hope that is held out in the gospel, we have nothing to live for. Thank you for giving us this grace, Lord, and we thank you for giving it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.